0: Good morning. It's November 14th. It's another bright and chilly morning in New York City. The heater is gurgling away in the background, and this is your Indignity Morning Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Skoka, taking a look at the day and the news. The House of Representatives is considering a plan from Speaker Mike Johnson today to avoid Friday's deadline for a potential government shutdown. The hardline Republicans who brought down Speaker Kevin McCarthy are still against funding the government, but Democrats have indicated that they may be willing to save Johnson from being hung out to dry. That could, the Washington Post reports, extend to the Democrats cooperating with the procedural votes to bring the measure forward, rather than sitting back and letting the ungovernable House majority demonstrate its ungovernability again. The proposal itself, according to the Post, would divide the continuing resolution into two pieces, with two separate deadlines, one in January and the other in February. The Post writes, if Johnson's plan can pass this week... Then Republicans can later dig in to insist on cuts to federal programs without the risk that they'd be blamed for shutting down the whole government. Not entirely clear what's in it for the Democrats, then, except their unshakable commitment, against all evidence, to the idea that their counterparts across the aisle are capable of behaving themselves and passing reasonable legislation. On the front of the New York Times, the lead story is another dispatch from Al-Shifa Hospital, as Israeli forces close in on the beleaguered facility in Gaza. Inside the hospital, the Times reports, staff was moving 36 premature babies to the only department that still had oxygen. Three babies, the story says, had died when the oxygen was cut in the neonatal ward, according to the head of the neonatal intensive care unit. An official of the Gaza Health Ministry, the Times writes, says that to care for the premature babies at Al-Shifa, the medical staff is putting sheets of reflective foil and blankets over hospital beds and laying the babies close to one another to replicate as much as possible the warmth of an incubator. Four of the premature babies there were born in emergency C-sections after their mothers were killed in strikes, he said. It bugs me a lot of the time to hear people appeal to personal experience to describe why they care about something bad in the world. You shouldn't have to be a father of a daughter to care about equal rights for women. And the carnage that's been inflicted since October 7th seems like it should be self-evidently bad. But as the parent of someone who was a premature baby... There's something in particular that gets me about the stories of the NICU in Gaza, which is that it's very easy and obvious to say that these are babies that could die without medical care. But the other way of looking at preemies is that these are babies that, by and large, will live with medical care. They're not inherently doomed. They just happen to be born in the wrong place at the wrong time. And these babies were born in a wronger place at a wronger time. If they don't make it, it's because other people made deliberate choices that will have kept them from making it. Elsewhere on page one, there's a dispatch from Detroit about the tensions between Arab American and Jewish voters in the congressional district represented by Rashida Tlaib, the lone Palestinian American in the U.S. Congress. The piece goes back and forth between the inimical views of the two groups on the question of hostilities between Israel and Hamas, without really specifying which side outnumbers which, a question which might seem relevant both to Tlaib's political strategizing and to her obligation to represent her constituents. In the end, the piece lands on declaring that neither side is demographically representative and that the district is more than 43% black and remains rooted in Detroit, with most household incomes below the national median and the second highest poverty rate of any district in the state. Also above the fold is a look at Xi Jinping's attitude toward the United States, as expressed in the Chinese government's internally published volumes Xi Jinping's Selected Major Statements on National Defense and Military Development, spanning from 2012 to 2016. The revelation, if not the surprise, is that behind closed doors, Xi voiced an almost fatalistic conviction, even before Beijing's ties with Washington took a steep dive later in the Trump administration, that China's rise would prompt a backlash from Western rivals seeking to maintain their dominance. Seems like an accurate assessment. And right on the fold comes the news that the Supreme Court despite none of its members having done anything the least bit improper, unveiled its very first official code of ethics yesterday. The Times reports, Left unclear was how the rules would be enforced, and the court said that it was still studying how any code would be put into effect. Two paragraphs later, the story continues, Revelations of lavish vacations and high-end gifts have cast a light on how few ethics rules bind the justices, but under the new code, it remains unclear which of those activities would violate the rules, and who would decide. Here's a hint. Though the words on paper might seem to describe limitations on the gift-taking and on the overt political activities of the current justices and their spouses and the financial benefits enjoyed by said spouses, the fact that the current justices signed off on it rather than resigning shows what they think about whether it applies to them. And speaking of ethics, next to that is a story mounting a new effort to combat fake reviews, which begins like this. After Dr. Mark J. Mormon completed a successful orthopedic procedure in 2019, his patient turned to Yelp, the review website, to share his appreciation. Dr. Mark made me feel that I was in safe hands, the patient wrote in a five-star review. Only the writer was not an actual patient and there was no procedure. His review was fake, part of an effort to boost the online ratings for Dr. Mormon's business. Okay, stop. You can't write a news lead in the newspaper saying Dr. Mormon completed a successful orthopedic procedure if no such thing happened you're still asserting it as a statement of fact. And it's not a fact. The headline already says the reviews are fake. You don't need to pretend, even for the span of two paragraphs, that they were real. It's not clever. It's just annoying and untrue. He could have been posting fake reviews after real orthopedic procedures, but if the orthopedic procedure never happened, you can't say that it did. That is the news. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to Indignity to keep us going, and If all goes well, we'll talk again tomorrow.